Welcome, seekers of financial enlightenment, to the podcast that's not just a show, but a transformational experience. This is Money 911, where we shatter limitations, ignite possibilities, and guide you through the intricate dance of money and life. I'm Chris Miller, your catalyst for change, and today we embark on a journey that will challenge, uplift, and reshape your financial universe. Hold on to your dreams because we're about to meet a visionary, an agent of change who's turned complexity into clarity, chaos into opportunity, the creator of Doom to Fail, a book that doesn't just inspire, but lights a path toward a brighter financial future. Get ready to deep dive Dream Big, and welcome, Paul Chacon. All right, Paul, your book, Doom to Fill, takes the theme of complex adaptive systems. This is a theory developed originally in your research field and of particular physics and applies to human society. That sounds huge. Maybe you can make it real simple and explain and expand the idea for us. Yeah. Well, complex a- a- adaptive systems, it was an idea originally developed in physics in the late 1980s, 1990s, but now it's it's uh, gone to be used in, in very widely in biological systems. It's used a lot now in artificial intelligence as well. But any system where you have components, which are individual agents, so this is the way that it's applicable to human society, people have individual agency they have many motivations, encouraging them to do various things, things that they want for themselves, things their family want, they're influenced by their neighbors or people they see on TV and so on. So whenever you have this complex soup of interactions between independent agents like a human society or like the uh, the economy and financial markets, then this kind of theory is applicable. And they, these systems have a number of very important properties their complexity means that they are they're highly non-linear. So we're used to linear systems. You make a small change in an input gives rise to a small change in the output. These don't behave like that. These obey power laws. Small change in the input gives rise to a massive change in the output. Here we're operating in the world of the butterfly flapping its wings in the Philippines, giving rise to the formation of a hurricane over the North Atlantic, that kind of thing. The complexity means that they are deeply interconnected, which renders invalid a lot of techniques of, of classic Stoic philosophers of taking a complicated problem, dividing it up into its component parts, getting experts to solve each of the components, and then reconstituting the whole. That will work for things, problems which are complicated, but it won't work for problems which are complex because these interconnectivities are too intertwined. And the final issue is that they are adaptive. They change over time in ways that are often completely unpredictable. This is the fundamental reason why a lot of things in financial markets completely confound expectations of experts because you know there's been some change, some changes that other people in the system have done, something the regulators do, like you know, the, something that the government does, changes the tax rate or something like that. And that causes the the people to react in ways that were almost impossible and frequently were not predicted at all. So a classic case of that is in terms of that, you know, house prices, the very large series of rate rises we've had from the Fed over the last couple of years, 
biggest uh, series of rate rises, and and that's increased mortgage rates, the fastest uh, set of rate rises, at least since the Second World War. Normal conventional expectations would be that that would hit house prices. But house prices haven't gone down. They've been very, very strong, if not risen. So what, why was that? Well, the reason was ex post, you can see the reason was a lot of people had very had mortgages at very attractive rates. And when rates rose very sharply, they, they decided they didn't want to sell their houses. They didn't want to move because they'd have to replace that mortgage with a new one at a much higher rate. So they decided to sit tight. They withdrew their, their house from the market. And that, so the inventory collapsed. Now, there are still people who want to, to buy houses that they need to, to move or they need a larger house, whatever reason. But with a collapse in inventory, the strong demand and house builders haven't built as many houses as uh, the, at the rate that we need, given the household formation. So that supply and demand imbalance means house prices remain very strong. So that's a, a good ex post rationalization for what happened. But I don't know anybody who forecast in advance that that would happen. I think everybody was expecting to see house prices crater, given the, the large rise in mortgage rates right, that we've seen. Right. But that kind of thing is typical of complex adaptive systems. Right. Well, you know, in your book, you say the world has recently been undergoing simultaneous crisis for yes. distinct complex adaptive systems, which yeah. have been in, interacting with each other and make it simple for for us, that, that's you know, that's right. right. So the four systems which have been in in crisis really for varying lengths of time. One is the political system oh, yeah. that's been in crisis really since the global financial crisis of fifteen years ago. People have increasingly come to think, given the way in which the the Fed responded to the crisis, and in my book I talk about how in fact the Fed actually caused the crisis. People have uh, come to think that that the political elite, the business elite, are Running the running of the system, running our economy, running our political framework for largely for their own benefits. There's a protected elite class who are creaming off much of the benefits of of uh, productivity gains and much of the benefits of our economy. And for many people, the American dream is no longer working. There's increasing wealth disparity, increasing dissatisfaction with uh, the way that democracy is delivering results and the way that capitalism is delivering results. And that, that's very unfortunate. But much of that arose as a result of one thing is globalization and the hollowing out of a lot of middle class jobs in America as you know, labor was shipped to, or we, we took advantage of cheap labor in China and the Far East. So globalization was a big part of that. But also the global financial crisis 15 years ago and the Fed's policymakers' reaction to that, that's also a big driving element behind this, this change of perceptions. So there's the political framework, which is a crisis. The economy, frankly, has been in crisis of, of greater or lesser extent ever since the global financial crisis 15 years ago. It's never really got back on its feet. It's just starting to get back on its feet. And then we were hit with the third thing, which is the pandemic, which is now we think it's largely behind us, although there are still some some elements, um, you know, some, some variations of the virus, which, which may come back to bite us. But that's been a, a crisis situation in terms of our, you know, our medical frameworks. And then finally, there's a long, slow-burning crisis in terms of the, the the climate. And each of these systems by itself is complex and adaptive, and it's been in crisis. But they actually they are interacting together, and that's another classic behavior of such systems. So, for example, a classic one is I talked about a, a little bit about the the interaction between the political crisis and the economic crisis, and the Fed's reaction and policymakers' reaction, the Dodd Frank Act. And how that exacerbated 
you know, political problems. But another one is the is global climate change and and the the economy. A lot of things that the you know the climate evangelists want people to do. They want a quick acceleration in the adoption of renewable energy sources and stopping spending money, stopping investing money in uh, in you know uh, carbon based technologies, so oil and coal and things like that. But that's going to hit the economy very hard, especially for poorer people who, for the most part, can't afford a lot of the more expensive. They can't afford Teslas or solar panels on their roof and things like that. So that addressing issues in the climate, which are perfectly legitimate things for the evangelists of that thing want want to do, that's going to damage the economy and especially hit poorer people. And it's going to further exacerbate the political crisis. So this kind of interaction where you have experts who focus on one, one narrow set of things, they're oblivious of the impact that their suggestions, their policies, their changes will have on other things. And that's one of the reasons why the, the, these problems are often very intractable, because each of them individually requires a tremendous amount of knowledge and expertise, but experts tend to know only about their narrow field of study. And these problems... We, we need people who have, and our policymakers, our, our politicians, our political leaders, we need people who have a good understanding of a, of a whole suite of things, you know, the you know, political, in terms of the you know, politics, in terms of the economy, in terms of global climate change, and in terms of the the pandemic. So they're very, very difficult situations to, to deal with. And policymakers inevitably make mistakes when they're dealing with such, uh, faced with such complexity. Absolutely. And you got to have it figured out before you make all these changes. And and a lot yep. of people are suffering. And that's partly why the economy is so rough right now and right. going to be worse. In fact, the other side of the planet is meeting right now and creating another currency, right? The BRICS. They're, they're going to attempt to do that. Yes. They're attempting. The, it's the not going to happen like that. It's a process, but it's a reflection. So you talk and you relate the underlying mechanism, which makes democracy and capitalism the best organizational principles, yeah. right? So the, the, the reason why I suggest that is that, as I've explained, Making, you know, the policymakers, our politicians, our leaders, it's their job to make decisions, to make policies, make decisions which will influence our lives and control our lives to a large extent. Given the complexity of the, of the problems that they're dealing with, inevitably over time they will make mistakes. Maybe we have really smart people or more likely they get lucky and they make decisions which, which work out well and we laud them and we re-elect them when they do that. But inevitably, given the problems that, that they face, Inevitably, over time, they're going to make mistakes. The accumulation of their mistakes will reach a point at some level that we, we just want to get rid of them. Politicians are so wedded to their policy, their credibility is tied up in policies that they've pushed. And it, would be, it wouldn't be credible for a politician to say, you know, this, this idea that I've had, I've been pushing for the last five years, it just doesn't work. We need to abandon that and do something completely different. They would lose all credibility if they tended to do that. So we, the only way we can society can take a new direction and bring in new policies is to get rid of those failed leaders. And democracy, this is why democracy is the best form of governance, is because it naturally has, with, with elections, we can naturally remove one set of failed leaders and replace them with another set peacefully. And we know that when we elect, elect a new set of leaders, they're going to go on to fail in their own way too. But nevertheless, the very fact that we've, we can press this reset button Periodically, every four years we have elections, 
more frequently for, for some kinds of elections. But every four years, we can bring in a new set of leaders if we so wish and get rid of the old. And that provides society with a natural safety valve, release valve. It's very cathartic. And that's why democracy is, is a good framework, because it has that release valve. In contrast to that, in autocracies, so Xi Jinping's China and Vladimir Putin's Russia, where they held elections, but Putin's the only person who stands and, you know, it, it isn't a fair election at all. In autocracies, the leaders make mistakes just the same as they do in democracies. But there's no peaceful means of removing them from power. There's no release valve. Uh, failing leaders in, in China and Japan and the other autocracies they double down on their mistakes. They double down on their failing policies. They repress their own populations. They wage war on their neighbors to distract their populations from domestic political problems at home, such as what Putin is doing to a large extent in Ukraine. And so autocracies are much, much more likely to go to war against their neighbors and to repress their own people. They're very dangerous places. So the United States, as a long-term strategic policy goal, in my opinion, should have the idea of trying to encourage other countries in the world to become democracies, because that's the way in which we would make the world a safer place. Now, you asked about, well, how does that relate to capitalism? Capitalism grew naturally out of the Industrial Revolution in the United Kingdom in the in the 18th century. Capitalism is the same underlying mechanism applies there. The overwhelming majority of businesses fail within their first two to three years. We, we see signs of successful businesses, the, the, the tech giants and so on, and the success of the tech entrepreneurs. That gives us a false impression that running a business, founding a business, running a business, making a lot of money, it's easy. But that's simply not the case. The overwhelming majority of businesses fail. And capitalism is a, is a filtering mechanism to quickly filter out the bad businesses, the bad ideas, and kill them off without destroying too much capital. So there's enough capital left over to support the successful big business ideas, the good ones, and they can go on and propagate into the future until through Schumpeterian creative destruction, they too are outcompeted by a new business which is more successful. So capitalism is a natural way of an economy, you know, the, the economy and financial environment, replenishing itself over time, preserving capital and moving forward. In contrast, centrally planned economies and industrial policies of governments that have those, as we have in the United States, they have a long, long track record of, of failure. The assumption that people in those running those policies make is that the country is run by the great and the good, that they're, they're more intelligent people, they will make better ideas, they've got the lowest cost borrowing power of the state to back those businesses. How can they fail? Well, of course, you know, they fail. Those the, the great and the good have got no better means of, of predicting what businesses are going to be successful than has an ordinary entrepreneur. But when uh, when those businesses, having the full capital backing of the state, when they fail, they destroy huge amounts of capital. And so uh, those centrally planned economies, as I say, have a long track record of running bad businesses. The people running the business are more interested in protecting their own privileged position than they are in serving the needs of right, customers. Right. So they are much less uh, much less likely to be successful. Exactly. Well, Congress once again allowed itself to be pushed into appeasing the administration and raising the debt ceiling for the 79th time, paving the way for continued reckless spending and further devaluation of the dollar. As our national debt continues to skyrocket, how are you protecting your savings? 
times like these are a great reminder to diversify a portion of your savings into gold. And you can do it with the help of Birch Gold. And here's the easiest way to do it. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. You don't pay a penny out of pocket. As BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa band together against the dollar, more and more central banks are diversifying. You know what they're buying? Gold. Follow their lead and visit Birch Gold backslash money 911 for your free information kit on gold. There's no obligation, just information. With an A-plus rating with a Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers, Birch Gold can help protect your savings too. Visit Birch Gold backslash money 911. Take action today. So where does the role of central banks play into, in particular, the Federal Reserve? Well, I think that the, the Federal Reserve has messed up two things really badly. One, one is its management of monetary policy, and the other is its regulations of the banks. And I talk about these both of these elements in my book, Doomed to Fail. So the, the Federal Reserve, the, the rot set in really with Alan Greenspan, who followed Paul Volcker as Fed chairman. He came in 1987, very early in Greenspan's tenure, we had the, the stock market crash. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell by more than 500 points, 20 standard deviation move. Greenspan quickly and the Fed quickly flooded the markets with liquidity to protect the financial system. A reasonable policy at the time, except the fact that the liquidity wasn't withdrawn rapidly enough. And he, he did he did similar things thereafter. In 1992, there was a European the European exchange rate mechanism gave rise to a somewhat of a crisis and, and a fall in the stock market. And again, the Fed made the same action, flooded the market with liquidity. 1994, a similar thing. 1997, Asian financial crisis. 1998, Russia default, long-term capital management hedge fund collapse. Every time there's one of these, the stock market was in crisis, the Fed flooded the market with liquidity. And that conditioned everybody to believe that's what the Fed would do. It became known as the Greenspan put option. The Fed would have investors back. So have this the sell off in the stock market, the Fed would flood the market liquidity. That liquidity would then pump up stock prices again. But this, this was asymmetric. Greenspan jawboned against high equity prices, talked about irrational exuberance, but he never backed up the jawboning with raising rates. So there's an asymmetric interest rate policy, interest rates systematically have been too low. And that's led to a, a blow up in asset prices. It led to a low up in equity prices really before the, the 2000 tech bubble burst. In, in 2000, it led to, to a, an, another uh, bubble in equity prices, in real estate prices leading into the global financial crisis of 2008. Those crises were largely caused because the Fed was running interest rate policy far too low. You, know, you might say, well, why they supposedly target interest rates to target inflation, and they have an inflation target of 2%. Where does that 2% target comes from? Well, it comes from the fact that the Fed want inflation to be low, but they're afraid of allowing inflation to fall too low 
and becoming negative and turning into deflation. But here's where they make the big mistake. Their fear of deflation comes from the 1930s and the, the Great Depression. And what happened there was that we had asset price deflation. Farmers had borrowed against their land holdings to invest in their in their businesses. Stock speculators, speculators had borrowed money from banks to buy stocks on margin. And when the depression hit and, and, and prices started to fall, uh, that caused the banks foreclosed on the loans against the farmers. They foreclosed against the loans from the stock speculators. This caused a cascade of, of selling and further selling. So the thing we have to fear is asset price deflation. But the Fed conflated asset price deflation, which is really bad. I want to avoid that. They conflated that with deflation in the prices of normal goods and services. Now, nor the the normal, the long-term trend of prices in goods and services actually is is down. People think it should be up because we've got a growing population demanding more goods. We've got fixed amount of oil and gold and commodities and other stuff. So they think a growing population should give rise to price increases for commodities. But that's completely wrong. Human ingenuity, as we get larger population, we get more human ingenuity and better ideas for how to use commodities, uh, recycle commodities and so on. So actually, in the absence of government intervention, the long-term trend in the prices of goods and services is negative. It's down. And you, you can only look at you only have to look at the prices of things like computers and TVs. Long-term trend in prices is down. The things where the prices are, uh, rise are actually those where the government tends to intervene and there's excessive regulations. So things like healthcare, things like the uh, things like education. That's where prices have been been rising. Uh, so goods and services, the long-term price trend is down, and the Fed should not fear deflation in CPI, or the, price, the price of goods and services. But because they conflate these two things, they've run monetary policy far too low to prevent goods and services price inflation from falling, becoming negative. In the course of running interest rates too low to prevent that, they get, gave rise to a bubble in asset prices, a bubble in real estate and a bubble in equities. Well, what happens when you get a bubble? At some point, the bubble is going to burst, and then you get deflation. So because of the Fed's stupidity, frankly, and misunderstanding how the economy works, misunderstanding the difference between asset price deflation and normal goods and services price deflation, they target the wrong thing, and they actually bring about the very thing they should care about the most, which is asset price deflation on the back of a, bu a bubble in asset prices bursting. Right. So that's... a. Uh, yeah. So that, that that was a, a you know a, a really bad mistake. Yeah. Well, you know, you you suggest the Fed has failed spectacularly in the management of money pot yeah. policies and its regulation of banks. How many are on the watch list right now? Yes. Right? And you know, in one sense, I'm you know I've been here a few decades, so I'm watching the death of the American dream, the depth deep loss of faith in democracy. And capitalism in the country, yeah. I'm seeing a lot more kind of socialistic kind of trains of thoughts. It's just changing yeah. before my eyes, right? Yeah, and that's that's very dangerous because yeah. um, you know, your your observation is correct, but it, but it's very dangerous because in mm -hmm. fact all of the improvement of living standards in the whole of humanity's order of two hundred thousand year existence on the planet, all of that has occurred in the last two hundred fifty years thanks to democracy and capitalism. So it's very unfortunate that people should be losing faith in these things and that they we, we risk 
throwing out the babies of democracy and capitalism with the dirty bathwater of wealth disparity. So our, our, our elites, our political elites, our business elites, if they were wise, they would take account of that and try to reduce wealth disparity. They would try to share the economic pie more fairly across the, you know, everybody in the United States, you know, to keep people, uh, keep people's faith in democracy and capitalism. Because if, if they don't, the, the pendulum of wealth disparity can only swing so far in one direction. And eventually it reverses violently, usually through revolutions and wars. And we absolutely do, do not want that. So I, I call, you know, my, my, boarding, my book is titled A Warning. I'm calling on the political elite, the business elite, to be wise, to recognize that the, the business elite, frankly, is creaming off far too much of the economic, the country's economic pie and it damaging the interests of the middle classes, which have been, which was hollowed out by globalization. The, the multiple that the chief, the chief executives earn over what the, uh, the average business, the, the, the average person employed by, by a company. Uh, back in the early part of the 20th century, that was a factor of about 20. J.P. Morgan at the time said, when that ratio rises to more than 20, you have to be very concerned that managers are running the businesses for their own interests, not for the interests of the of shareholders. Now, it's it's multiples of that. It's more like you know 2,000 times. And that's, uh, that pendulum is swinging far too far in the, in the favor of, of, uh, of wealth disparity. And it needs to be it needs to be corrected because otherwise we we risk people's loss of faith, giving us to increased political polarization in our country, and and the, the you know the, the risk of you know, the, the risk of something like a civil war breaking out, political uh, destruction you know coming about because people think that that they can no longer the American dream has died for them. They can no longer afford to, a house. They can, can't afford to go to college themselves to put their kids through college and so on. That, that's why I talk. I say we're we're risking the the death of the American dream. That's what people increasingly feel, and that needs to be corrected. The, 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 you know, these pains that people are suffering are real. Yeah, uh, that's your book, Doomed to Fail, right? And and yes. I, you know, I'm an optimist, but you got to look at what's going on. I'm watching, you know, the dollar go away as a yeah. currency. Right. And yeah. just recently, all the changes that are going on. So yeah. we, we can. I, I'm an optimist. We can fix these problems. But my the reason for my writing this book was to get people thinking about these issue, mm-hmm. issues, to, to recognize the issue that we have, that wealth disparity has increased to a point where, where people are losing faith in democracy and capitalism. And that risks bringing our whole country you know, uh, cr- crashing into spectacular failure. We we absolutely do want do not want that. We can address these problems, but we need to act now. And what you know, the average person when they look at everything, just you know, they're going to work and they're just doing their daily thing, they don't really feel that they can do anything. They're sort of a victim of circumstances. So for the average person, the person that's listening to this, watching their savings go away and inflation go yeah. up and their wages not increase, what do you tell them besides yeah. you know, voting or something? They, they, they need, I mean, the democracy is the best way to address these problems, but we need to elect new leaders. We need to throw out a lot of our old failing leaders. A lot of the things that have happened in the United States, especially things like gerrymandering, process whereby politicians choose their electors rather than the other way around, that's hugely problematic. So I think we should think about things like term limits, 
for all political office as a way of reinvigorating our democracies. People should go out, should recognize it's a privilege to live in, in a democracy. They should take advantage of that. They should make sure that they vote in every election that they get a, they get a chance to. They shouldn't waste their vote. I want to see a reinvigoration of civic activity and people getting involved politically, people talking about these ideas yeah. and uh, uh, electing new new leaders. And you know, when they when they fail, as of course they they will in the end, given the nature of the, the complex problems they're dealing with, we we throw them out. Thanks, so thanks very much, and we bring in a new set of leaders. Right, and you know, a lot of people are kind of discouraged that they don't even trust the political system. And I don't, I'm not, you know, a political, but you know, I hear both sides, and yeah. So it kind of feels like it's now or never, you know, yeah. it's right now. I, I, I think mm-hmm. I think elections in the United States came under a lot of stress in, in, in the last few years in the 2020 presidential election. But our, our political institutions held firm, thank goodness. You know, I'm glad that we did. I think we can have confidence in, our, in the results of our elections you know, resulting from that. However, there is a problem in that in order to get elected in the United States to so any sufficiently important political office, you need to be extremely wealthy. And then we see our elected politicians having become elected, having got for for themselves positions of power, they act in ways to further enrich themselves and do things frankly, which if if we tried to do those things, we we would be found guilty of insider trading. So there's a lot of those kinds of issues where they use privileged information that they have given their political office to enrich themselves. That kind of thing has got to be rooted out. We, we need to root out that kind of corruption. We need laws against that. And we need to bring in politicians who will introduce those laws. Well, I think that your book, Doomed to Fail, can actually be a positive thing as a warning side, like, you know, turn right. Uh, that's a cliff. That, 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 that's a cliff exactly why I, why I wrote it, right. to, try, to try to spark this kind of interest in, in a political debate yeah, and get people to be more, more engaged in this issue. And we've lost being able to talk about things. I mean, because I, to me, when I look at the political system, I don't even, I just see a uniparty. I don't even see two sides anymore, really. Yeah. It's all become one thing because all the things that you've said. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's often the case. There's far too much money in our politics. There's far too little difference in, t- in terms of p- people's political thought thought we we need more diversity of opinion and be able to talk with each other and yes. disagree nicely right? D- this disagreement is absolutely fine nicely right. but you know be, be, be civil be civil be about civil, it right. but listen listen to your neighbor listen to the person you're talking right. to you don't have right. to agree with them they don't mm-hmm. have to agree with you but you can be civil you can you can have an engaged discussion and right. listening to what other people have to say right. is the is the best way to yes. understand their view and m- maybe you know m- maybe they've got some something right. important maybe got some good ideas in what they're suggesting and you know your explanation and a lot of it you know it's very technical but it makes sense and the people, I think so. I think it would be really good for people to check your book out. Maybe tell them how to get doomed to fail, how to get a hold of this. This is this is uh, a pre-publication pop- copy of the book. Okay. The book has now been published. It's available, of course, on Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble and the major sites. But you can you can buy it also directly from my website, which is called www.paulsinsights.com. That's paulsinsights.com. And that's the, the cheapest and fastest way to get hold of a copy of the book, either as a physical 
hardback book like this or as a as an ebook on on, on a, or you can read on a Kindle. And I've just last week completed narrating the book for, as an audio book, which will be, will be released very shortly. So if you're too busy to have time to read, but you can listen in the, whilst you're driving your car or something like that, then you can uh, you can listen to the audio book too. That's it. And, you know, you've turned something very complex because it is complicated into a clarity and and turn chaos into opportunity. So that's how I, why I invited you on to talk I like to about, think so. right, and to talk about the doom to fail. And it doesn't just inspire, but it lights a path to to a brighter financial future. And so I'm I'm really happy that we got to have this conversation. And I really do hope that people wake up and take a moment to look at everything that we've been talking about. It's so important. That's great, Chris. Thank, Thank you very much indeed for inviting me into the show. It's Paul, the pleasure's all been mine. Thank you so much. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. As the echoes of transformation reverberate, we bid you farewell, knowing that today's episode of Money 911 isn't just an experience. It's a catalyst for a new beginning. Paul, thank you for igniting our minds and sparking the flames of possibility. That wraps up this illuminating episode of Money 911. Remember, every challenge holds the potential for greatness. Until we meet again, I'm Chris Miller, encouraging you to dream boldly, embrace the journey of financial evolution. Healthy money, happy life. Create income you'll never outlive. There's so much to learn about healthy money. I hope today's discussion brings you one step closer to securing and protecting your future. So you can get started on the right foot, go to meetwithchrismiller.com and schedule your free financial fitness strategy session. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to Money 911 so you don't miss our next episode, which includes health, wealth, and peace of mind. Bye.